Hello, we are Restoration Church Chicago and welcome to our podcast. You can connect with us through our website, restoration.life, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Our mission is to glorify Jesus everywhere, and that includes right here, right now. Thanks for tuning in. For those of you who are new or visiting today, my name is Kalina, as you already said, and my husband Mike and I serve on the leadership team here at Restoration. This is our church family, our home, and we are so privileged and blessed to serve here. And what a journey we have been on. My first message was on camera, thanks to the pandemic. The second was at the loft, and now we are here. It's tough on my nerves to do this, and I couldn't even get comfortable in a space before moving on to the next one. It is so good, though, so good to look back and see how Jesus has carried us through every season. May Jesus be glorified everywhere, even now. Well, today I am picking up where we left off last week in John 11, specifically verses 17 through 37. I was excited when Hugh gave me the text for this week because I recognized the chapter. This chapter contains one of the verses that having grown up in the church has always been close to my head. Not my heart, my head. The verse is John 11:35. Jesus wept. Just two words long, this is the shortest verse in the whole Bible. And that is the reason this verse was always close to my head. As a child, it helped me in Bible verse memory competitions. Yes, I was that kid. It was one verse that took very little effort to memorize, but it brought up the tally for the total amount of verses memorized by a whole point, which could make or break the win. So lame, I know, but all that to say, I hope this morning this verse will touch your hearts as it did mine once I took the time to actually understand it not just memorize it. Once I read this verse in its context and tried to really understand it, it did become very close to my heart and it was never just a head thing ever again. And in case you're all a little concerned for me, it became close to my heart a lot longer ago than just these last couple weeks spent on this passage. My Bible competition days have been over for a while now and I have properly loved this verse for a long time. Even still, it never gets old. There is fresh meaning and revelation every time. I'll recap quickly, in case any of you did not get to hear last week's message. Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary, was sick and dying in Judea. Martha and Mary sent word to Jesus that the one he loves is sick. They are asking him to come and heal their brother. There is an understood urgency And yet Jesus has decided to stay on the other side of the Jordan River for two more days before even beginning the trip to go to Lazarus. He has made some mysterious claims that imply he knows that Lazarus is sleeping, which he then clarified to mean he is dead. But then he also said that the sickness will not end in death. His disciples' heads must have been spinning. 
The text ended with Jesus saying, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. These words of Jesus caught my attention because they sound a lot like the thesis for the whole Gospel of John, as stated in John chapter 20, verse 31. But these, the signs and wonders, the account of Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote about the signs and wonders of Jesus while he was on the earth with the intention of convincing the reader that Jesus was the Son of God so that the reader might also have eternal life. With this same heart and desire, Jesus is glad because he wants his disciples to believe. He wants them to believe in him and have life. Jesus was not glad about death. He was glad about the opportunity for life. Then the disciples decide to go with Jesus to Judea, even though it is dangerous for Jesus to be there because the Jewish religious leaders wanted him dead. There was a lot of controversy surrounding Jesus. Sorry, it's gone. Jesus kept revealing that he was the son of God and the religious leaders were enraged by this. They hated him to the point of wanting him dead. But Jesus decided to go anyways. He knew there was more than death awaiting him. It is clear that Jesus had complete foreknowledge of what was happening and his actions were intentional. He is carrying out a mission for the sake of more people believing that he is who he keeps saying he is, the Son of God. Now let's begin reading this morning's text, beginning in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Let's make an abrupt stop here because these are two statements that seem random without context, but there is nothing random about Jesus. We knew Jesus took two days to even begin to go to Lazarus, and now we know that it was four days since Lazarus' passing by the time he even made it there. The reason given for this is that the Jewish people had a superstitious belief that the soul continued to hover over the body for three days after a person's death, and that it wasn't until the body started to decompose that the soul realized the body was actually dead and it was time to go. Jesus waiting for it to be the fourth day meant that all hope, even a superstitious hope, was truly gone. Lazarus was dead, and there was no hope. To wait this long to show up could appear to be cruel. What a blow for the sisters who had placed all their hope in Jesus. The second statement was that Jesus is now just two miles from Jerusalem, where most of the people are who want him dead. I doubt the disciples were feeling very good about this. Thomas had even said, let's go with him to die. And now they weren't even risking themselves for the hope of a miracle, for the healing of their friend. They were risking their lives for a wake. It is all so backward, seemingly irresponsible, 
And at the same time, we can see that Jesus is being undeniably deliberate. Whether we trust him or not decides our interpretation of his actions. We have a clue, though, from last week's message that he is risking his life for everyone else to truly have life. Let's continue reading to see how those directly involved respond to the way Jesus has handled the situation. We'll pick up in verse 19. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. First, we see that Martha went to Jesus. The moment she knew he was close, available to her, Martha went to Jesus. In one of the darkest moments of her life, when all hope was lost, and she could have stayed in the comfort of her home, surrounded by her family and those who were already grieving with her, she went to Jesus. Mary stayed home. Stick with me here for a second because I felt like I was getting to know these two sisters as I read this passage, and I went back and read the other famous story about them in Luke 10. In this story, Martha has opened up her home to Jesus and the disciples. She is busying herself with the preparations of hosting. Mary is seated at the Lord's feet, listening to everything he has to say. Martha, in exasperation, appeals to Jesus, Lord, tell my sister to help me. And Jesus answers, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. We all have personalities, weaknesses, and strengths that in a way make us who we are. We are all uniquely created by God, and he made us with purpose. Sometimes our strengths can become weaknesses, and our weaknesses can appear to be strengths. Martha usually gets a bad rap for being too busy to just sit and listen to Jesus, and I'm not trying to change the story here. Jesus clearly knows Martha better than I do, and he called her out in that moment and gave her the exact truth she needed. But I also believe he was much more gracious to Martha with his words and manner than we are sometimes when we read or talk about her. Hosting is a big deal, and it is a lot of work, and I can only imagine that Martha was a great hostess, which is an amazing quality. I am not such a great hostess, and I have all the luxury and help of the 21st century. I try to be, and I'm determined to grow in this area, but I can honestly forget something as basic as offering my guest a glass of water with all the other details floating around disorganized in my head. 
And almost every time when I am done hosting, something I forgot will pop into my head just as I'm about to fall asleep. It's great. Oh, man. But please don't let this confession make you afraid to come visit us because Mike always remembers the water. You won't leave dehydrated. Anyways, you get it. Hosting was no small thing. And what we learn about Martha's character is that she seems to be a hardworking woman, a go-getter, maybe even aggressive, and I don't mean that negatively. If something needs to be done, she does it. So in this moment of her grief, what was a weakness in the last story is now a strength. Maybe it is safe to say Martha learned how to properly apply her natural God-given strength. She learned that being at Jesus' feet was where she needed to be, and her drive applied to that newfound truth got her there. She did something. She went out to meet Jesus. And she speaks freely to him. Martha speaks freely to Jesus, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She expresses her disappointment, but we can know that no way was she on the offense. She was not attacking Jesus. She calls him Lord. When Tyron was here, he reminded us of the importance of seeing Jesus as our Lord, our master. Martha submissively acknowledges him in this way, and yet she is still honest about what is in her heart. For some of us, it is hard for these ideas to coexist. I know it is for me. The last time I went through something hard, I felt like my prayers dried up quickly. I was still praying, but it was so hard, like walking through mud. With help, I came to realize that it was because I was trying to keep my prayers the same as before I was in hardship. I was trying to walk a tightrope, even in private prayer, of expressing great consistency in faith. I ended up receiving counsel to simply express myself to God, remember to thank him as things come to mind, to pray for people as they are placed on my heart, and to share my disappointments and hurts truthfully because I can trust Jesus with them. My faith needed to be in Jesus and not in my own efforts to survive whatever came my way. Martha also had faith. She expresses herself honestly and then says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. With certainty, she asks of Jesus the impossible. Jesus replies right away that Lazarus will rise again. If only all our prayers were answered that way. Just yes, right away. And Martha says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She makes sense of what Jesus meant to be a literal statement for that very day by assigning it a more spiritual meaning. And then Jesus said the key to this whole story to her in verse 25. Let's read his words again. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Jesus is the resurrection because when one believes in him, they become alive and not just in this life but forever. Martha believes that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. 
She believes that he is who he has been saying he is all along. Martha's confession in this moment is evidence of a resurrection. Her dead soul has come alive and will always be alive. In the thick of death, we have life, the kind of life that lasts, and this is true comfort. You see, Jesus comforts Martha with the truth of who he is. Jesus is comforting Martha with himself. He is the resurrection. Through him, there is eternal life. He asks Martha if she believes this, and she responds in faith. Even though Jesus had not made it in time, and she could have felt abandoned instead. Even though her brother was dead and past hope and her earthly longing will surely not be satisfied, she believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, her Savior. What a challenge for us. Sometimes we are desperate for earthly miracles, and that desperation takes precedence over what we have already received. Martha did not have the full gospel at her disposal. She did not know that Jesus would suffer torture and die to pay the price for her sin and then come back to life three days later, breaking the power of death once and for all. And yet she believed. What a challenge for us who have already received the full gospel. Is it enough? Even if we do not receive the miracle or the yes to our prayers on earth, is the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life everything to us. I am not saying to not contend for miracles. We should. We believe in them, and Martha just did. She still asked for Lazarus to be raised from the dead. I'm just challenging our perspective. Even if Jesus were to raise Lazarus from the dead in that moment, he would still have death ahead of him. It would not be a permanent state of life. He'd still have death in his future. By all means, contend for miracles for the glory of God, but know that victory is already completely ours. Death is already defeated. Jesus himself is the resurrection, and through him there is eternal life. That is permanent, and he has made it so. Let's continue reading in verse 28. After she had said this, Martha, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Okay, so we see many similarities here to Martha's encounter with Jesus. We see that Mary also goes to Jesus. Many others were there to comfort her, but she went to Jesus. 
So just in case you thought I was critiquing Mary's character earlier, when I recognized Martha's strength in going to Jesus immediately, I was not. We are all different, especially sisters. I should know I'm one of three. We all may look like we were made with the same cookie cutter, but we're very different on the inside. So we're all different, and Mary had a lot of people surrounding her for comfort, and when she heard Jesus was asking for her, she went immediately without giving any notice. She also demonstrates faith with the same words as Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She and Martha had been talking. Again, there are a lot of similarities, but Jesus responds completely differently to Mary than he did Martha. I heard Tim Keller say, and I agree, that it is because Jesus is the perfect counselor. These are two very similar narratives, but as we have noticed before, they are two very different women. Jesus knew how to comfort each one according to her personhood. This is why when we find ourselves in need of comfort, we should run to Jesus. And we do this by taking everything to him in prayer. I am speaking from a place of conviction here, not consistent experience or practice. I am the most guilty person of running to every other person first. Mike, my sisters, cousins, parents, friends, mentors, everyone hears about it before Jesus. And he is right there, watching me do all my running around and FaceTime calls when I could just sit with him. Yes, he gives us community and encourages it. But is there any thought in us to go to him first or at all? It doesn't need to be fancy. He is and always will be there with the perfect comfort and the perfect counsel. Just come to Jesus. He is close. The veil was torn. The veil was torn. Can we think about that for a minute? I understand the desire to have been present as Jesus walked the earth, but let's not forget that that was also a time before the Holy Spirit was dwelling in the believer. Martha and Mary had to physically go to Jesus. They did not have the comforter, which is another name for the Holy Spirit, dwelling inside of them at all times. The presence of God up until Jesus was only in the Holy of Holies, behind a curtain, the veil, where no one but a carefully selected priest could enter once a year. We might find this hard to believe, but I can assure you it is real. The Bible says it is. Jesus has never been closer. Jesus has never been closer than he is right now. He is in you. You are in him. We can access him at any time, and we don't need to get his attention or fight off the crowds. We already have his undivided attention. He is just waiting for us to give him ours. Dr. Kessler, a professor and author from Moody Bible Institute, wrote a beautiful article recently titled, Is God Hard of Hearing? And he biblically concludes that God is absolutely not hard of hearing. Otherwise, it would not be a beautiful article. And he says, We misinterpret God's silence if it leads us to think 
that we are the initiators in prayer and that God stands by impassively as we wait to see what he will do for us. The scriptures paint a very different picture. They show that God moved in our direction first. Consequently, our prayers are a conversational answer to what God has already said. Prayer is a response to an invitation extended to us through Jesus Christ to express our needs and desires directly to God. The fact that God does not answer in kind when we speak to him in prayer does not mean that God has nothing to say. As the hymn writer declares, what more can he say than to you he hath said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. And of course, I hope we can all agree that God does answer prayers, but let's not lose our eternal perspective in the times where we feel he is silent. I assure you he is right there and he is listening because he has spoken through his son, the word, and great conversationalists also listen. If these next few verses do not convince us that Jesus is worthy of our trust for empathy and comfort, I don't know what will. We are about to see Jesus emotionally moved. Let's continue reading our passage in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The tears of Martha, Mary, and the other weepers moved Jesus emotionally. He already knew the outcome of the situation. He has already said this will not end in death. And yet we see that he is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. I have read in commentaries that these Greek words do not translate very accurately into English. But they mean to convey that Jesus was actually angry. Very angry. I found it interesting to be encountering Jesus' anger again since the last time I spoke was on Jesus clearing the temple and his anger is on display there as well. So I will say again what I said then. Jesus, being God, is perfect in his emotions. We can assume that his anger is a perfect response as we ask ourselves, what was he angry at? He was angry at death. Even though he knew it would be okay, he was furious at the pain it was causing. I feel like if we watched another human get furious at a situation that caused pain, when we knew they knew it was all going to be okay, we might deem them a little too dramatic. But Jesus, perfect in his emotions and his expression of them, understands as the resurrection, as life himself, the evil nature of death far better than we do. We grieve death. We do. But I believe that Jesus grieves it more. He understands it better. And he knows what it was for it to be absent. And he grieves its presence and all that it implies. Pain, sickness, sin, 
separation from God, finiteness. He is angry that death would torment the ones he loves even for a second, and he enters into their suffering with them. Jesus wept. And suddenly, this verse is not just the shortest verse in the Bible. It can't be properly measured. It holds a depth that is beyond our understanding, and it brings with it deep comfort. Jesus is weeping with the weepers. There is a distinction, however. The weepers would have been wailing and shrieking hysterically. Culturally, this was how the Jewish people mourned. You could hire people to come and do this at any funeral. Again, thanks to commentaries, we can know that there is a distinction in the word used for Jesus' weeping versus the weepers weeping. The word used for Jesus' weeping communicates that it was deep and heartfelt, but not hysterical. He did not grieve without hope. Jesus wept, but he was not out of control. Jesus had a hope that did not yet fully exist on earth. But now, through the resurrection himself, it does. And since then, the Bible commands us, do not grieve as those without hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Jesus gives us permission to simultaneously grieve deeply pain, suffering, and death, while still being able to sing, O trampled death, where is your sting? I'm not trying to tell anyone how to grieve, but death does not have the last word. It does not get final say. It has lost its sting. Let's read the last couple of verses, 36 and 37. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? The weepers misinterpret Jesus' emotional expression. See how he loved him is the interpretation of Jesus' weeping by those present. And though they are not wrong, they do not see the full picture. It is a surface-level understanding at best that leads to the doubt of who Jesus is. The absolute opposite of belief in who Jesus is. They feel Jesus is weeping because Lazarus is dead and because there is nothing he can do about it. They believe him to be afflicted by the loss of Lazarus. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? I believe up until this point, this must have been Jesus' most famous miracle. In John 10, the chapter just before this one, as people are trying to figure out who Jesus is, they filter it through this miracle as well, saying, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? There is so much doubt surrounding the identity of Jesus. If there were no doubt, the question would have sounded more like a declaration. Since he opened the eyes of a blind man, surely even now God will give him whatever he asks. Why is he crying? This is how Martha phrased it. 
And then she professed belief in who Jesus was, the Messiah, the Son of God. Who we believe Jesus to be changes everything. And so we end this week's section of John on a cliffhanger. I tried not to directly give the ending away, though it may have been implied, and many of us, maybe all of us, know where this is going. So can I encourage us to make this a little more personal? Who or what is your Lazarus? Is there something in your life causing you pain? Is there something that seems impossible? Anything that would take a miracle? Where are you in that storyline? Do you need to run to Jesus and tell him what has happened and how you are hurting? Do it. Run to Jesus. Pray and know that he is close and already listening. Contend for a miracle knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Son of God is able. Or do you need faith that Jesus is weeping with you? Sometimes we feel that Jesus is distant and suffering, or worse, that he is directing the suffering at us. But I would suggest, without getting into the complexities of the meaning of suffering, that he is suffering with us because our grief grieves him. Do not weep without hope. Weep with Jesus and know that he weeps with you. Jesus wept. And finally, is what this event foreshadows, the gospel, is the gospel greater news than if your story ends the same way this one does? Assuming we have all already guessed the ending. As I said earlier, some of us are desperate for earthly miracles, and that desperation is taking precedence over what we have already received. Or our belief and trust in Jesus is dependent on what he will do for us almost like an ultimatum, rather than what he has done. He has already bought and paid for eternal life for us with his own suffering. Lazarus would still have death ahead of him if Jesus raised him from the dead. And think about Job and his suffering. Remember Job? Job had 10 kids. The Bible says he frequently sacrificed for them just in case they sinned. He must have loved them so much. And as we know, they all die. He suffers many things, and in the end, God gives him more than he had before, including ten more earthly children. And we think, yay, Job, it's all better now. But it's not. No child can replace a lost child. Not to minimize the blessing the second set of kids were, but they did not undo the suffering Job went through losing his first ten kids. Not in a million earthly years. That pain was only undone when Job stepped into heaven, his eternal life, and had twenty kids. Maybe I'm assuming more than I know here, but I just mean to say that there is some suffering that will not be fixed this side of heaven, even if we receive the miracle we are asking for. But the promise of Jesus being the resurrection and 
the life, means that one day with him, all suffering will be undone. There will be no more death, only life. But for now, Jesus is the perfect comfort because he feels our suffering. And he is the perfect solution because he is the resurrection. Pray to Jesus. Weep with Jesus. Believe Jesus. And by believing, you will have life. Do you believe Jesus is the resurrection? Who we believe Jesus to be changes everything. Thanks again for listening. We hope you were encouraged. Don't forget to connect with us through our website, restoration.life, as well as on Facebook and Instagram.